Hello, left fielders. At LFI, you know our focus is on networking and education. Mark your calendars because we're going to have a full day of it dedicated to you, our limited partners at the best ever conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City. LFI is opening the BEC with Passive Investing with Left Field Investors, an event focused on passive investors. This will be where insightful content meets passionate limited partners. If you enjoyed BEC last year and the meetup in Left Field this year, then imagine them both back-to-back. The Best Ever Conference isn't just any event. It's the premier conference for commercial real estate investors and operators. Your ticket to passive investing with left field investors includes admission to the entire Best Ever Conference from April 9th through the 12th. Join us April 9th where we will have a packed agenda with sessions focused on how to be a successful limited partner led by experienced LPs, top operators, and partners. Then, immerse yourself in the full Best Ever Conference where you will be surrounded by like-minded investors, operators, and industry experts for unparalleled opportunities for learning and networking. The best part, and there are so many, but the best part, you won't find a bigger discount on the regular ticket price than the one you get for being an infielder. That's more content for an exclusive lower price. Register for the event today at leftfieldinvestors.com slash BEC, and we will see you at Passive Investing with Left Field Investors at the BEC. Have a deal in mind and a group of investors ready to go? Use TribeVest to pool your capital together through a multi-member LLC. TribeVest has streamlined the group investment process, making it easy, quick, and safe to do business with others. Start a tribe and invite your partners to join. Then you can use the platform to collaborate with your partners, pool capital, and manage your joint investments. I'm in 12 tribes myself. It is a great way to learn from others, spread risk, and get into deals at lower minimums. Go to TribeVest.com to get started today. Real estate moves slowly, right? If you're looking at real estate as an asset class, patience right now is key because you are better off being late than early because it's so slow. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. This is Chris Miles, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Hello, left fielders. We have a treat for you today. If you attended the meetup in left field, this is your second chance at this. And if you didn't, well, you're in luck. If this was a Hallmark movie, they would say, in a very special holiday episode of Passive Investing from Left Field. But this isn't Hallmark, so I'm just going to stay it. We do have a special episode today. We're presenting the Mound Visit with Jeremy Roll from the meetup this October. This was a great session where Jeremy talked about the state of the market, investments for the next 10 years, what he's putting money into now and what he's not, what LP investors should focus on, and much more. Please note, the audio isn't perfect because this was a live event but the content is worth it. This will be two parts with part two airing one week from today in the last few minutes of 2023. Happy holidays and enjoy. Hello, everybody. Um, this is a great menu. It's so cool. Uh, anyway, my name is Jeremy Roll. I'm going to try and keep the intro somewhat short. Uh, I am a full-time passive cash flow investor, LP investor. I started investing in 2002. Or whoever is older, young in the room, we just after the dot-com crash, that's actually why I started looking at this type of investing. And I ended up rotating all my uh, savings from stocks and bonds into cash flow between 2002 and 2007. And in 2007, I left the corporate world. So I've been a full-time passive cash flow minister for uh, since 2007, whatever that math is. And uh, But I started in 2002. So it's been over 20 years. A lot has changed, a lot has changed since I started, that is for sure. 
that absolutely, and a lot has changed in the last two years, not to mention the last 20. So we will get into some of that. So everyone's talking about possible recession, hard landing, soft landing. We already had the recession. We're going to have it tomorrow. We're going to have it next week. So can you kind of just give us your thoughts generally on the state of the economy and how do you see the possibility of a recession and how will that affect our investing? Yeah, sure. And let me just start with a couple of uh, important points. First of all, just so you guys know, I'm not a financial advisor, investment advisor, accountant attorney or anything. So this is all just my perspective as an investor, which may or may not be right at all. Um, and when it comes to the type of investing I do, which I think is really important to frame because I'm going to be answering with that in mind, I've got very low risk, kind of looking for more predictability, cash flow type focused person. So I look for stability and predictability. So I do a little bit of value add, never done a development, but I generally look for more predictable cash flow right out the gate. So, so to answer your question about the economy, um, the way that my head works, and honestly, I think one of the most important things I do as a passive cash flow investor is trying to stay on top of where the economy is heading, where we are in the cycle, and also, you know, general society or consumer trends. So if I'm investing in something, let's say with a 10-year fixed rate loan, I've got to think 10 years ahead, where is this asset going to be in 10 years? And does this make sense today? Not for tomorrow and not for next year, but like five, 10 years from now, which is an important thing. So from an economic cycle perspective right now, um, I think about probabilities. And the way I see it is that anything is possible, but what I think is most probable is that we are gonna have a recession. Um, I don't know about whether it's gonna be a soft or hard landing, that's really difficult to predict. Um, if you take a look at the data and just ignore the media, which I know can be hard to do, we're pretty much on exact track where we should be based on when the yield curve inverted, when um, the Fed started to increase rates, and when banks started to tighten financing and lending. We, we probably still shouldn't be in a recession. We're getting very close to that period, um, but we're not there yet. So everything's kind of rolling as it would. I would caution everybody that the term soft landing is used every single recession. Um, I literally just read a, and I'm not trying to pick on her, but I just read an article last night that Yellen in 2007, Jenny Yellen was talking about a soft landing. And of course, then there was a very hard landing, right? And, and people are now saying, because she's calling for another soft landing, that means we're gonna have a hard landing. That's probably not true necessarily, right? But if you look at the search term uh, soft landing on Google from 2008 to nine, we're pretty much almost at the exact same level of the term soft landing even back then. So that's a common thing that happens every cycle. So I would ignore that, just look at the data. And I think we're gonna have a recession sometime in the next six to 12 months. Um, and I think that's gonna set us up for what I would call the recession playbook of like certain things happening with real estate, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about those things, the certain things, but like what, what are you, um, what's your concerns over the next say short term, six to 12 months? And what are some of those things that you think would, would come with the soft landing? Yeah, so if I look at just, you know, I'm thinking about investing in, in opportunity X or asset X, my opinion, we've had, well, there are two dominoes that we should be focused on. One of them has already fallen, but the other one hasn't yet. So the one that fell was interest rates went up. We all know that, and that's obvious now. And that has made a pretty substantial reduction in property values based off of cap rates increasing, right? Um, what I think hasn't fallen yet is the recession domino. And normally when the recession domino falls, just typical scenario, most probable scenario is that you have uh, a reduction in rents, an increase in vacancies, and you have a reduction in revenues, right? In our current environment, you should not expect expenses to go down. You should expect them to continue to go up, right? And so when you have revenues go down, expenses go up, you have a lower net operating income. But you also have another thing happen that's very important during the recession was that you have much more fear than we have today. We have a little bit of fear today, but the stock market hasn't capitulated, hasn't crashed. We haven't had that yet. 
And so for as little LP interest as there is today compared to a year or two ago, you would expect there to be significantly less in a year from now um, based off of that, just on based on probabilities. And so what I would expect is that you have net operating incomes down, which increases, decreases the value of a property, say, 12 months from now. But you also should expect cap rates to go further up because you're going to have less demand from LP investors, you know, sponsors who are less capable of raising LP equity. And that's actually a compounded effect of a property value coming down, right? So you have profit down, value down. You also have the multiple someone's willing to pay go down. And you therefore, you have a compounded effect of a property value going down. So for me right now, long answer is that I'm very concerned about investing in something today unless it's really unique and compelling is some odd reason because I suspect the property values are going to be lower in six to 12 months from now. And what would be, what would qualify as odd and compelling that you might actually invest in? Because I know a lot of your money seems to be on the sidelines. And yep. we had a conversation, uh, we were on a panel in 2021 at the IIREC. And I think you said at the time that some of us in the room might make more money than you over the next few years because you were on the sidelines. Yep. So can you kind of answer it in that context? Are you still on the sidelines and, and when are you getting in the game again? Yeah. So uh, I've definitely been on the sidelines when there's a lack of predictability or certainty when I don't know where things are going because I'm looking for that predictability, right? So for example, like I didn't invest in one floating rate bridge loan multifamily deal and some people made a lot of money off those. That's what I was referring to, right? Some people got out and made a lot of money and other people are having challenges now. I was more on the sidelines. And so right now, there's a couple of things that I think could get me over the fence, that get me over the fence this year investing in something. So one thing would be just something really unusual on the real estate side. It could be a huge difference in price for some odd reason. I've done a lot of tax, so I've done a lot of defensive investing since 2017, because we probably would have had a recession probability-wise in 2020, based off the inverted yield curve back then. So for multifamily, as an example, I started investing in low-income housing tax credit deals in 2017, because they tend to perform better in a recession. It was really a defensive play of what's going to perform well when things are bad. Um, I then invested in some tax abatement. I've done quite a lot of tax abatement, multifamily investing in the last two to three years while all those floating rate deals were happening. And that was both also defensive into recession, but just really unique amount of value added at the initial closing with no execution risk at that point in terms of uh, a huge appraisal difference. And the, the difference is so vast that I actually said, okay, that's going to create enough padding that if this property value goes down, which I think it will at some point, I'm still going to be okay. And I'm still probably going to be ahead on the equity even though it will adjust. So that's one example. And with the tax abatements, can you talk a little bit, bit about that? Because I haven't seen, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly almost 100% investing in syndications or other people are doing these. So is that a passive deal? Oh yeah, yeah. No, that's just a tax abatement is a type of structure that's, that's done. You're, you're often converting a regular multifamily you get on a contract into a tax abated structure by the time you close. But everything, I, I've never done anything active. It's all passive. Okay, excellent. And you talked about, defense, right? You're in a defensive posture. So what are some asset classes, some additional asset classes in that? And then what do you see as maybe offensive asset classes? Because as we've talked before, you've been doing this for 20 some years. So you have the luxury, I think, of being a little bit more patient, right? Where some of us have capital that we need to allocate. And I look at it as dollar cost averaging, where I'm going to continue investing because I can't time the market up and down and you're on the sidelines. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, that's a really good point you made in that I have been doing this a long time and I have a little bit more leeway to have patience, but at the same time, and by the way, if I could pick one word today to instill in everybody, real estate moves slowly, right? If you're looking at real estate as an asset class, patience right now is key. 
because you are better off being late than early because it's so slow. Just think about that if you've not thought about that. That's really important. Okay, I could not instill the term patience right now more, really, like word of the day. Um, and so um, if you're asking me what else I'm doing right now, uh, I've been investing in ATM machines since 2008. I've been very lucky, I've been very, really successful with it. But I also started in January of 08, so I've been through the last downturn. And so I saw what happens with revenues, et cetera. I have a lot of confidence it'll do pretty well during a recession, so I've been doing a lot of that um, in the past few years as well with that as much concern. I have other concerns about that space, but not necessarily the recession as much. Um, the challenge of me telling you what makes sense right now is that literally like nothing makes sense to me because of timing unless there's something really unique, right? Um, or with the ATMs, I'm investing in an asset that's going to depreciate to zero. I don't have to worry about the value of the asset going down. I have to worry about the business performing and cash flowing during a recession. It's a different consideration set. Now, if you ask me over the next five or 10 years, my favorite asset classes, I would tell you for predictability and stability, it would be mobile home parks, apartments, and self-storage in certain locations, they're gonna have to get through some adjustment in self-storage in terms of supply, et cetera. But once we get through that, I think it'll be pretty good. Um, everything else to me is kind of tier two. I'm not saying all the other asset class about, I'm probably gonna invest in some of them, but those are the most obvious. But the problem is that I can't tell you that I that makes sense today, unless it's a really unique situation. You, you mentioned ATMs, and a lot of people in this room have invested in ATMs or are interested in investing in ATMs. And it seems like there's really one main operator, right? Prestige is the one I, I'm aware of. Maybe there's a couple others. Um, but there's a lot of different capital raisers that deal with prestige. So is there a difference whether I go with capital raiser A, B, C, or D because they're all working with the same main company? Are you referring to prestige specifically? Yeah, or you're in any... Yes, I am because that's the one that I think most of us are familiar with. But I, mean, I know there's others that uh, probably syndicate that too. But how do I... Because... I'm, the capital raiser is coming to me with terms, right? That, but it's coming from prestige. Are there is there a difference between the different capital raisers and the terms they may have, or or does it matter? Because it's all the same. It's different than multifamily because you know you're managing a building. Well, if you're buying an ATM, I, does it matter who the capital raiser is, or does it matter who the company is? And how do you analyze each one of those? Yeah. The ATM opportunity is a little unique because, and by the way, I'm going to give you my understanding. You really need to confirm this is prestige for accuracy. So I don't like usually answering on behalf of, of an operator. I'm just giving give you my understanding. But um, so and I've actually had this conversation with probably three investors in the last month alone because it's a little confusing. So, um, so my understanding is that prestige um, has an investor relations arm, which is real asset investor, which is a separate company. Dave Zook, I think it's, that's his company. He started investing with Prestige, I believe, in 2012. He did uh, some initial fund investments with them with Real Asset Investor, his group, um, where he was not a managing member of Prestige Fund. And then he eventually became a managing member of Prestige Fund. But his, I think he offered his Real Asset Investor company to be the investor relations arm or operational side for the fund. So the only way to invest directly in the fund, my understanding is to go through real asset investor, and then you're investing directly into prestige funds. So that's kind of number one. Number two is that some of the groups have, are acting as intermediaries from what I've personally seen, and the returns are actually projected to be lower because they're taking a piece as an intermediary. Some of them are just passing it straight through. Um, and some of them have, and something I negotiated, I have an investor group, and something I negotiated was a side letter for downside protection. So some of them have this side letter and some of them don't. Um, you know, I, I could tell you that I negotiate over 100 changes in the operating agreement 
um, you know, a couple of years ago with them. And that is a final operating agreement that applies to all the groups ever because there's only one operating agreement, but I also negotiated the side letter. So you'd have to inquire about the side letter. It has like two different provisions in it. Um, so it's a little confusing, honestly, because like there's a whole bunch of different ways you can go with it. If you're investing in ATMs through Prestige, thank Jeremy for the, uh, yeah. the due diligence it, on the operating agreement. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to say, it doesn't have to be through me or anything like that. Because I mean, honestly, I'm just investing directly with real asset investor, but just happen to get the side letter. Yeah. So. But I mean, that that's due diligence, right? I mean, we're talking about how do you become a better investor? He goes and looks at the operating agreement where most of us are, you know, eyes barely open reading it. And, and he goes and negotiates changes. And well, I just think that's impressive. Yeah. I just want to be clear about something. I think that's the most number of changes I've ever negotiated in an operating agreement. I don't negotiate 100 changes in every operating agreement. Where's Heath? Are you there? Yeah, he's probably like, you know, I've known him forever. He's like, he negotiated 100. You know, I don't want to talk to him anymore. But um, I've known him since he was before he was with LBX. But um, anyway, so uh, normally I negotiate maybe 5 or 10 or 15 changes, but typically even a smaller number. They're all very important. That operating agreement is really, really important. Well, let, let's talk about that. But first, who here has negotiated a change in an operating agreement with an operator? Okay, I, I guess you can. There's a few. There's a few that have. So what are we looking for if we're going to, you know, well, one, what are we looking for? And two, do we have to have the name Jeremy Roll or David Shirky to get someone to listen to us to make a change in the operating agreement? Or are the operators just going to say, well, sorry, take it or leave it? Yeah, and it really depends on who you're talking to. Some of them are more open, uh, open than others. One thing I would encourage you, though, is if you read the operating agreement and you see errors, uh, if you see errors that are in your favor, don't say anything. I'm totally serious. I'm saying that with a straight face. I've done that many times, okay? Because you can use that in your back pocket down the line because it's a legal document that they've agreed to. But if you see an error that needs to be corrected that isn't in your favor, point it out. Because most of the time, I found that if there's an error that they didn't intend to be in there, even if they wouldn't normally be open to amending an operating agreement, they'll actually change that. They'll actually create an amendment for everybody. And when they create something that's an amendment that's more favorable, um, than it was before. They don't have to get approval from the LPs because it's actually more favorable option than you already uh, subscribe to. So um, you asked me what we're looking for. Yeah, what, when I look at the operating agreement, it's I'm not an attorney. Right? Yeah. As we said, we gave all the disclaimers. I see a bunch of words. I see some of them are capitalized. So I think, okay, I got to read those. But, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what it's talking about. I mean, I, I try and I'm learning, but I, what do you ask for? Yeah, so... One, I, I, even if you hate legal documents, which frankly I do, um, once you read enough of them, you'll realize that most of them are very similar, okay? And then what you have to figure out is over time is what are the most important things I need to look for to protect myself or to figure out how this is gonna work. So I'll give you some really easy examples. Um, cash call provisions, right? So I've seen some situations where if you don't contribute a cash, and I'm giving you real actual scenario, you don't, send in your money within 48 hours of a cash call, you, you get diluted by 50%. I've seen that before. And I've actually pointed it out to people who invested in a deal and said, you better go look at that document because that's why I passed on it. And they had not read the operating, they had no idea, right? Um, so I know it's annoying to read these documents, but they're really, really important. So you want to look at cash call provisions, cash distribution requirements. Do they actually have to legally give you your money within a certain period of time, maybe 60 days after the close of the quarter? The problem with these documents is that they're written for the sponsor and not for the investor because the sponsor is engaging the attorney. And so often what the, what the, the way they'll be written is that they're very loose to give the, the sponsors a lot of leeway on you know, how they have to operate, reporting requirements. Um, I try to shore up those requirements so they include at least a minimum uh, pieces of information. 
But the problem is that usually they're very loose and there's literally no requirement often. There may be a requirement that there's one cent. It may not be required to be sent within a certain period of time. Even though they're going to tell you there's monthly or quarterly, it may not be legally required. And there may be no nothing legally, from a minimum perspective, required. And the problem I have with that, it's not that they don't have good intentions. It's that if push comes to sub, you didn't get something as an investor, you want to protect yourself, you can't because you didn't. You agreed to have loose terms. And so we can go through a lot more if you want, but I'm just trying to throw some important... Yeah, more. And I, I guess, what? well, keep going. I'll ask my question later. Okay. Um, let me think about some more stuff. So, um, you know, it's funny. I always look at something called an indemnification clause because in order for um, a sponsor to be protected and actually for money to come from the opportunity or from the LLC to protect them in the event of a lawsuit, there are certain exceptions. So usually terms I look for are fraud, uh, mismanagement, and willful misconduct. Um, but the problem with, for example, with mismanagement, it's very subjective, right? From a, from a legal, like a judge's perspective, what is mismanagement? Well, I always try to get that word in there because it actually gives you more leeway if there was a problem, whereas they're always trying to leave it out, right? And so sometimes they'll let you to put it in. Sometimes you're negotiating with an attorney and you cannot put it in. So everything's different. Um, but there, there's a lot of other things that you want to be looking for. I mean, it, you know, these are the rules you're agreeing to. And so I'm going to guess that nine out of 10 of you probably don't read the whole document and not trying to point fingers, but it's just really, really important you do that. And I would say the same thing for background checks. I mean, I, I come across very few people that are running background checks. I will tell you guys, I have been saved several times over the last 20 plus year, like undoubtedly saved by doing a background check that took like 10 minutes. So let's talk about background checks then. When you do a background check, uh, do you do the background check on the capital raiser, the operator behind the capital raiser? Both? All of the above? So um, my personal philosophy is always to do a background checks on all the managers of the a managing member entity because um, they have control over the opportunity. Um, one thing that I do is I give them an opportunity to tell me if there's anything I need to know before I actually run the background check. And that's a bit of a test. It's kind of like a, I do a lot of stuff that's like reading between the lines. And that's one thing that I do. So I will ask for a name, date of birth, and home address. Um, I actually don't necessarily need those except for the name, depending on how unique or not unique this John Smith. I do need that. Um, I probably just need the address. I don't need a date of birth, but I ask to see if there's any pushback almost purposefully. Um, and then I say to them, look, is there anything I should know before I run this background check? And it's interesting because the, one of the most common examples I get where, you know, someone's trying to hide something is maybe they had a bankruptcy 10 or 15 or even 20 years ago. And they'll say, no, no, you're not going to find anything on there. And they think it's gone after seven years, but it's not. It's off of their credit, but it's not gone. It's there forever. And so if somebody had a bankruptcy 10 years ago and they didn't tell me, I'm moving on to the next person because the question is like, what else are they hiding, right? That's, a, that's, that's probably the most common example I can give you. It doesn't come up that much, but it's the most common one. Um, but I do, I do background checks on all the managing members of the manager entity. So um, operators, when Jeremy asks you for your address and birthday, he is not going to send you a birthday card. It is for a different... A different, more useful purpose. Hi, this is Zach Hapenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200 plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. 
To learn more about Rise 48 Equity's multifamily investments, schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. As a busy physician, I know exactly what it's like to work long hours, make sacrifices, and put your patients first. I wanted to create more freedom for my family, but I didn't know where to turn. So in 2012, I discovered the power of multifamily real estate investments. This allowed me to create passive income and freedom and wealth for my family. In 2015, I co-founded multifamily syndication investment firm, Viking Capital. My name is Vikram Raya. I'm CEO and co-founder of Viking Capital. And we believe that multifamily investing presents a significant opportunity for investors to build sustainable wealth and achieve financial freedom through diversification. Learn more about all our current deal offerings at vikingmultifamily.com. So have you had issues before? You you made these changes to the operating agreement. Have you ever had to do something about it? In the offer, you're talking about from an operating agreement perspective? Yeah, or, you know, like if a deal goes bad or like you, you do so much ahead of time, which is admirable. It's a lot more than I do. But when you do it, have you ever, over 20 years, have you had issues where you've had to say, well, hold on, operator, look at this, look at this operating room that you, we agreed to this and you did this. Everything's been perfect. So, <laughs> um, yeah, once you do this long enough, it's literally, we're in a baseball field, like impossible to bat a thousand. It really is. It just, if, you, if you're in enough opportunities over enough time, and that's why diversification is so important. It really pays off over a long period of time. Um, I'll give you one example of one thing that came up. I invested in uh, a fund of single family homes, buy, rehab, hold for five years, sell. Perfect timing, uh, purposely. It was, it was started basically in 2012. And um, basically there were three partners, and this is actually a really good lesson. So there were three partners, two of them were on the ground operators, one of them was a back office guy. Um, they had a partner dispute amongst themselves the two guys on the ground operators left who were by far the most critical when you're dealing with that type of asset. The back office guy stayed, had no idea what he was doing running these homes, right? So we started to have a challenge and I kind of stepped in and negotiated switching managers. So I said to him, look, you're mismanaging this, um, but if you hand over the keys to all the properties, um, then we won't pursue you type of thing. And I, and I don't want it to sound bad, like I wasn't, I didn't send a lawyer after him or whatever, but that's kind of what it was. He actually agreed to it. And so we had a transition where he had new managers come in, take the properties over, shore them back up and then resell them. In that case, we were right around break even on the original investment of capital, which is not a bad outcome, but obviously when you're not making a return, it's not a good outcome, right? So that's one example. Well, that, that's great. I mean, not losing money is the, is the first battle, right? And then you got to try to make the money. Yeah, but I want to point out that the term mismanagement was key in that operating agreement, just so you know, like very key in that operating agreement. Uh, that's great stuff. So I want to talk about then the, the operating agreement we've discussed, the PPM, the private placement mem memorandum. How do those relate to each other? And asking for a friend, do you have to read both? <laughs> um. <laughs> so I, I'm not an attorney, so I can't give you a definitive answer about even what a PPM, the purpose of PPM, but it seems to me like the purpose of the PPM is to both protect the sponsor because there's disclosure, typically of fees of a business plan. Um, those two things are the key things that are in there. I might be missing something. So I always found the fee piece was one of the most important things from there. Oh yeah, there's also a disclosure of risks, a very long disclosure of risks. So those, those are the three key things. Um, I believe that most of them, uh, most of the sponsors will elect to create a PPM because I've been in the odd deal that, where they haven't had a PPM. And they, what they do is they'll put some of those risks and some of those things into the operating agreement or the documents receive the offering documents, but there's no formal PPM. It's very rare these days that there's no PPM. 
Um, but the PPM at the end of the day is really meant to protect the operator because they can say, they can point to all, you know, everything they disclose and say, you knew about this fee, you knew about this risk, et cetera. So that's a very key document for them. But of course, as an investor, you want to read it. And I'm going to be honest, some of the risks you read are like boilerplate, attorney put it in, you know, like we're in this building, right? Like they'll talk about natural hazards of the soil of this building if you invested in this building and how it can impact you. Okay, like we kind of all know that's a thing. Uh, the question is, did they check it or not, right? But we all know that's a possibility. So there's a lot of boring stuff in there, but there's probably some important stuff too each time. So I would definitely you want to read it. Yeah, and when I look at those documents, as I've said multiple times, I'm not the best uh, at, at perusing through them. But what I do is I make sure that everything in the PPM and the operating agreement and the subscription or offering documents that they all agree with each other. You know, especially the the, the waterfall and, and the fees, you got to make sure that they all the documents agree because the attorneys that I've talked to have said if they don't agree, the operating agreement tells the tale. Yeah, and, and and that's actually a good point because I have seen some discrepancies over time for sure. And that's one of the situations where if you approach a sponsor and say, hey, there's a discrepancy, which is the right one? And can you fix it? They should be willing to fix whichever documents obviously off and then issue some type of amendment. So I, I want to dip back into ATMs just real quick because you mentioned something and you said that you weren't concerned about ATMs through a downturn, but you offhandedly kind of mentioned some other things that you might be concerned about with ATMs. Can you tell us what those are? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, the reason why I said I wasn't concerned with a downturn is because my experience in the last downturn with the ATMs is there was about a 15% drop in revenues. But in my opinion, Prestige has by far enough padding in terms of their own profitability and the investor returns to be able to manage through that. That's just my own opinion. Um, and so what I am most concerned about with ATMs going forward is a central bank digital currency. I'm not at all concerned about Venmo, PayPal, Zelle, and everything else because it's already happened and it's already baked in the cake, right? We already know the effect of that. I am most concerned about what's coming up in the future. And central bank digital currency is something that the Fed has said that they might be doing and they're investigating. We have no idea if they're actually going to do it. We have no idea what it's going to look like. We have no idea if it's going to be in addition to the use of cash or in lieu of the use of cash. We don't know the timeline. And so I am watching that as the number one potential risk. Um, the reason why I continue to invest in it despite that is that particular fund, if you're able to use the tax benefits, um, the depreciation, then the projected return, including that, is a roughly a three-year payback period for your, your return of capital. And in my opinion, it'll probably take more than three years for them to implement a, a central bank digital currency. I think it'll take a lot of years for them to roll it out and to have its full effect. So then that's just my own opinion. I could be wrong. Excellent. And so we talked about uh, ATMs and you, we mentioned multifamily briefly. So I, I want to ask, where do you think we're heading with the, uh, the floating rate loans, upcoming challenges? And a lot of us in this room have invested in multifamily a lot of us are in the floating rate, bridge debt, multifamily. What what are you seeing that, how are these going to, are they going to make it through? Some of them might, some of them won't. Can you just talk about how you see multifamily right now? Yeah. Um, first thing I'll say is I'm not 100% qualified to talk about this, both because I'm not in one of those deals. So I haven't like, you know, churned all the numbers. I've kind of seen some analysis. I have a bit of an opinion. Um, the other thing too is that um, on the positive note, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, um, well, you know, I'm not going to mention an operator, but I read an article recently because um, they may be here. So I read an article. I don't know. They read an article recently stating that there was one operator just this week that had a press release that said that they were able to, to renegotiate and extend. So in other words, reduce interest rate and extend out a number of their multifamily bridge, late, bridge, uh, bridge loan uh, floating rate deals. Um, and so that's very optimistic in terms of, you know, at least having more time to add more value 
and try to see if that could be worked out. I will tell you that I've also seen that the, the distress is starting. Uh, it's a fact that foreclosures have now started. Um, the most common deals that have gotten that type of distress and been foreclosed have been either just kind of the stuff that is just really, really hairy and to the point where like, I think they probably ran a spreadsheet and said, there's no way to save this, right? Um, but the problem is that those deals are so challenging that I am not considering those deals at all. It's almost like you have the hardest deals to, you know, to be working on first. But what would normally happen in a cycle is that you're going to have more distress come out, say, next year. And then when everything is, that's going to be distress is distress, you then go in as an investor, evaluate everything, and choose the deals that you like best. So I would, I would use patience right now if you see a distress deal, because the fact that someone hasn't really done what they can to try to save it could tell you that it may not be worth investing in right now. So in the 2008, 2007, the banks um, had a lot of foreclosures and they owned a lot of property. Do you expect that this time, being that it's going to be more commercial property, they will realize that maybe they should try to work out loans instead of foreclosing and becoming owners of apartment buildings? Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. There's been so much artificial kicking of the can and money printing and everything else. I still try to continue to be as objective as possible and just use the history to try to like have the highest probability of predicting the future. And I get very frustrated when you have everything artificial because that throws the entire like map out, right? That's the big challenge. And so I don't know what's going to happen. It's so hard to know. I think it's encouraging people who are currently investing in deals that there are some lenders that are currently um, extending and reducing rates. Um, but I absolutely, I, I expect at least some foreclosures because that, that just, that's where you should expect. That would be natural. Okay, so all I heard there was you, you could predict the future, so I will ask you the next question. <laughs> Just kidding. What, what do you see as the uh, best asset classes to look at over the next 10 years, let's say, if yeah. we're really looking out into the future? Yeah. Look, for someone like me who's looking for predictability, and this doesn't start today, this starts when the cycle really resets, um, whenever that's going to be. Um, one of my favorites is mobile home parks. Um, I read an interesting statistic recently. I used to tell people, look, you know, Turnover is very low in mobile home parks, right? Because people are sticky. They like to be there for a long time. So there's a statistic recently that I heard that um, if you have a mostly owner-occupied homes, meaning because the parks can have two different types of tenants. They can have someone who owns a home that's on the piece of land um, and they're renting or they're paying lot rent. And then you can have a rental home, which someone's renting that home and also paying lot rent, right? But they don't own the home. In the owner-occupied side of things, when it's heavily owner-occupied, the average length of tenancy that I read about was 14 years, okay? You know the average length of tenancy in a multifamily? I'm giving you just a high average, not depending on location and asset got probably like, you know, 50%, like, you know, two years, right? So if you're looking for predictable cash flow, I'm very much hoping to get back into mobile home parks. I stayed out of them for a few years now. I'm still in a few, but I stayed out most part in those because those cap rates got compressed, man, that asset class, that those prices went up the highest percentage of any asset class. And so once it got crowded in like 2015 or so, 16, that's when I really stepped aside. And I can't wait for that to reset. I think multifamily is going to be strong in a lot of markets once we have some type of recession and reset, um, just because of the continuing need for that asset from people who are living in the country. And um, I, I think that self-storage in the right location with the right type of user is going to be really interesting too. Those are my three favorites for predictability for the next 10 years. Um, there's definitely other asset classes that will be good, especially certain niches. But to me, those are the most obvious. I, mean, I think 10 years from now, where are we going to be? Those are the easiest to be able to predict. Excellent. And I have one more question. This is the 
the benefit of uh, being the podcast host is I get to learn and ask questions of people like Jeremy. And also that's the, the benefit here is I get to ask all my questions before you guys uh, get to ask yours. So my last one is capital calls, right? You probably don't have a whole lot of those because you've been fairly conservative over the last few years. Some people I know, um, looking at myself, might have a couple of capital calls. And how do you make the decision and what do you do to analyze, am I going to participate or am I going to be diluted? A very good question. Um, so for, let's start off with the fact that some capital calls are good. Okay. I've been in a lot of retail and office deals over the years um, that we had capital calls because we had a tenant expansion for tenant improvements, literally expanding the entire physical building, right? I'm in a deal in Canada that's government. Um, it's actually almost all medical office at this point. It's all government tenancy. It's actually the government that runs the, the Medicare up there. And they keep expanding this building a bit since 2008. We've gotten a capital call probably every three years to literally expand the building. But every time I'm like, yes, you know, because you're increasing the value tremendously of the property. Um, in the case where capital calls are not necessarily for a good reason, you have to be very careful because the question is, does it make sense for you to put this money up? Is this, is this actually, do you think that there's a high probability this business plan is going to succeed? I'm talking about the newly proposed business plan based off the use of this capital, right? The use of proceeds. And if the answer is no, if I were me, I would just get diluted, right? And the fact, the fact of the matter is, is like, if you're going to invest in a lot of things over time, you cannot buy a thousand. Some of them are potentially going to be a write-off. And what you don't want to do is lose more money than you needed to on that opportunity. So I can't give you a specific scenario, but make sure you run numbers and ask as many questions as possible before putting more money into something that may end up foreclosing nonetheless. I think that's great advice because as I look at it, when someone comes and says, hey, we have a capital call, I want to know, did you complete the business plan? Or is the business plan on track? Because if you just got hit by the interest rates that went up higher and faster than, we, than anybody expected, okay, I understand that. But if you didn't even start the business plan, then I'm certainly not going to put more money into it. So that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. And let me give you the, one of the most obvious things you should ask, I think, with multifamily right now as a starting point if you get a capital call, is what I've been reading is that some of the earliest foreclosures have been buildings, let's say a building's in a, a C property in a C area, and they're trying to inc they were trying to increase rents per the business plan $400, but in the one mile surrounding or the two miles surrounding, there are no tenants beyond like, it's a, it, you know, median household income is $35,000. These are real scenarios, right? And the sponsors may not have been experienced, didn't do the proper analysis. They're never going to get the rents to where they were trying to. And if that's a scenario for you and they're asking for capital, you got to take a look at that and say, did this business plan even make sense based on where it was located? Like, is it ever going to get there? Because these are the first foreclosures that are happening, the most obvious ones that aren't going to get there. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at Pfizer.co. Investing in syndications can be a daunting task. Wiring a large sum of your hard-earned money to someone you talk to on the phone for 30 minutes can certainly be scary. How can you be confident in what you're doing? Steve Sue, one of the founders of LFI, just published a book called 
Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left Field Investor, 20 Lessons Learned from 14 Years of Investing in Private Syndications. This is by far the best book I've read on syndication investing. It's an easy to read book, chock full of great advice from Steve's experience as a passive investor. It is a must read. Whether you're a first time passive investor or a veteran, go to www.leftfieldinvestors.com books and click on the link to Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left Field Investor. If you are a passive investor, you got to read this book. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts would be appreciated. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.